the Buddha said that when he surveyed the world, the universe, he saw nothing so varied as people's minds. <laughs> well, it, it was borne out <laughs> by the range of questions. Um, so I tried to group some of them together of similar theme. Um, and there were many more than we'll be able to get to tonight. So I'll read, I'll read the question and then hopefully something will come. Could you talk some more about your response in the hall this morning? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it helps. <laughs> Could you talk some more about your response in the hall this morning of, that the Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma. How is it in relation to the practice we are doing here? I'd always thought of it in relation to everyday life. Some concrete examples, as you alluded to over the years, would be really helpful. This other one, could you speak more about how purity of motivation is our greatest protect, protection? So the phrase, the Dharma protects those who protect the Dharma, I think we can understand probably in many ways, but two come to mind. In terms of our life in the world, the awareness of our motivation and the variety of our motivations gives us the opportunity to choose wisely in our courses of action. It's within the motivation that the, or the motivation is the seed of, of karma. And so depending on our motivation for our different actions, we will experience happiness or suffering in our lives. If we're not paying attention to that, we're not looking and seeing and learning to discriminate between skillful and unskillful motivations, it's as if we're sleepwalking through life. We're doing things, we're not aware of why we're doing them, what the motivation is. And so there's no light that's illuminating our unfolding, our unfolding life journey. And so we have no protection. We might be, as, as the Buddha mentioned, like those beings seeking happiness, not knowing the way, doing the very things that cause suffering. And so the protection, the Dharma protecting those who protect the Dharma, comes right back to refining our perception of motivation behind our actions. As you probably have seen, it's not so easy to do. Sometimes the motivations are very mixed, you know, or we're just not aware of them. We're not, we're not tuning in, we're not paying attention. In terms of the meditation practice here, where there aren't all that many choices that you have to make, the protection of the Dharma is really the protection of mindfulness. It's in the parade of mind states that arises through the day, you know, of desire and wanting and ill will and irritation and calm and peace and happiness and frustration and boredom and the whole range. If we're not mindful, then we get caught up, as you've seen many, many times. You know, we just get carried away and we get lost. We start inhabiting those mind worlds. Mindfulness 
is the great protection because it's not keeping anything out, but it is being aware of what's arising so we don't get lost, we don't get identified. And in that mindfulness, we can choose what is to be cultivated, what is to be abandoned. That's where the freedom is for us. And so mindfulness is really at the heart of the protection of the Dharma. And in fact, it's in the text, it's often referred to as that way. It's a protecting quality. And we can see it. You know, in every sitting and every walking through the day, what happens when you're not mindful? We're endlessly lost in the movies of our mind. Some of them may be great love stories. Some are adventure stories. Some are horror stories. <laughs> but they're all the movies of our minds. Mindfulness actually helps us be free in seeing that. I am happy to keep up my meditation and daily mindfulness practice with little expectation, but should I put some effort into looking for the insights of the practice, or will they be obvious and appear without effort? If so, any suggestions for how or where to look? I think it was a good book title, Looking for Insight. <laughs> uh, and the next questions all really answered that one. Uh, several references have been made by the teachers, including you, of the Buddha's teaching on the value of reflecting on the impermanence of the body. Can you go over this in detail? The value of reflecting on the impermanence of the body. What actual transformation might one expect from seeing deeply into impermanence even six weeks or three over six weeks or three months of practice, returning to a culture that reifies the self and all of the previous conditioning one carries, what is the likelihood of any significant change or transformation? <laughs> Isn't it like sending a sober alcoholic out to sit at a bar? <laughs> we know about the dismal addictive recovery rate. And I'd love to not hold the wrong view of identification, but it's not something that I can just decide not to do. Yet that's what it sounds like the Buddha was saying. Clarification, please. Okay, so really, the contemplation, the refinement of our perception of impermanence, of change, is at the heart, or is at the heart of... Uh, the real flowering of insight and the deconditioning of the grasping mind. The Buddha spoke often of mindfulness of the body and how mindfulness of the body leads to Nibbana, leads to liberation. The attachment we have to the body is one of our deepest, most deep-rooted attachments. We, we become so identified with this body as being self as being I. Why? Because we're not seeing it clearly. We're not seeing it deeply. We can examine the impermanence of the body in many ways. Just on the simplest, the very simplest level. 
one that can be carried out into the world easily as we practice remembering Right now, where is your experience of having had tea? Or where is your experience of five minutes ago? Or where is your experience of one minute ago? When we pay attention to the very obvious truth that our entire experience of the body, of the senses, you know, what we see and hear and smell and taste and feel and feel the sensations in the body, and of course of the mind. It's all just this current, this flow. It's it's the water over a waterfall. There's nothing that's lasting. And if we can see this, just in the very ordinary ways, in in any movement as we go from one activity to another, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, the more we see directly that things are changing, the less likely we are to at least live in the illusion that some next experience is going to finally satisfy us because we just see the changing nature of it all. Now obviously here on retreat it's easier to stay attuned to this because there are less distractions. When we go out into the world, the pull of the world is very strong and we forget. But the more it's practiced here, the more we habituate our mind to seeing this, the easier it is to at least remember in moments out there to perceive in this way. Our attachment to the body, our identification with the body, has so much to do with our fear of death. You know, when the Buddha recommended that we reflect on the truth of death daily. You know, in in our culture it's sometimes considered morbid. Why would you want to think about death often or frequently? There's one very obvious reason. (laughs) It happens. And it happens to all of us. You know, I don't know whether you recall from quite a few talks ago when the Buddha talked about those people who don't fear death, the conditions for not fearing death. He said, those people who are not attached, overly attached to the body, those people who are not overly attached to sense pleasures, those people who have done a lot of skillful things in their lives, those people who have some understanding of the Dharma, who really have seen the impermanent nature, these people at the time of death have a more tranquil mind because there's not the clutching, there's not the grasping. And even if Fear should come up at the time of death. 
if there has been a training in mindfulness, the fear is held, the fear itself is held with awareness, with acceptance, so we don't get into a struggle about the fear. One of the things that happens with respect to growing awareness of impermanence of the body, as you pay attention not only to the flow of change of movement and experience as we go through the day, and to actually do this, it's not, you know, it's so easy to hear all these words and to either agree or disagree or have some opinion about them. That's useless. It'd be much more helpful just to actually do it and then see for yourself. It's not a question of belief. It's a question of applying the teachings and then seeing the fruit of them. That we actually can go from the awareness of the body as being self to seeing the body as a flow of changing conditions. And of course, in sitting, as we begin to go more deeply into the body as an energy field, where the solidity of it, the form of it, begins to disappear and we're just feeling changing sensations, then the impermanence of the body becomes completely vivid. Because we're seeing, we're feeling that there is nothing solid here. In this regard, it's very helpful to distinguish the conceptual level of mind from the level of direct experience. Just as a simple example, as you're sitting and you begin to feel some burning in the knee, the first overlay that we would put on it is, oh, my knee hurts. Oh, there's pain in my knee. But we don't feel knee. There's no sensation called knee. What we're feeling is burning or twisting or stabbing. Or there was an article many years ago in Good Housekeeping magazine. It listed 89 kinds of painful sensations. <laughs> Probably you could come up with more. But that, we're actually feeling the sensations, not knee. And on the sensation level, the impermanence of it becomes so obvious. It may be impermanence in the direction of just getting worse and worse and worse. <laughs> but the more we relax into it, we see it's not static, it's not solid, and that there is nothing solid in the body. Opening to this does carry, carry out. The more we see it, the more we can feel it here, it does have bearing on how we are in the world. I'll just say one more thing about the situation of losing the depth of our insight when we're back involved in worldly activities. The image that's come to my mind a lot is it's as if you dig a trench you know, and you put in all that hard work, digging, 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 you clear it out. And you know, maybe now the water's flowing smoothly and easily in it. Well, you go out into the world and there's all a lot of leaves and twigs and sticks, you know, fill up the trench, and so the water moves very sluggishly through it. It's true that the insight may not be as steady or continuous or as vivid, but it's a lot easier to actually re-clean the trench once it's been dug 
It's like the insight, the level of understanding is much more easily accessible as a result of our having seen deeply and clearly on retreat. So it's not that things are lost. They may be obscured for some time. But there's one very great reminder which you can count on. Suffering. (laughs) You're back in the world and you start suffering again. And at a certain point, oh yeah, I remember. (laughs) And it wakes us up. The first noble truth has a great awakening capacity. And it reminds us, oh yeah, what did I do? Mindfulness, right? Pay attention. Things are changing. Don't hold on. You know, and we reconnect again. I mean, it's why we all keep coming back to retreat. Because there's something in us that knows. And even when we're caught up in the world, we remember, yeah, there is another way of seeing, another way of being that does not involve contraction, does not involve tensing in the face of experience. And we know that from our work here. Okay, there were several questions about where is joy in the practice, where is happiness in the practice, where is grace in the practice. And Carol's going to speak about that tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the easiest pile of questions. Okay, this next pile was probably the most. (laughs) There were many, many questions about this. And it's going to take a bit to talk about it. Today, Michelle mentioned the unconditioned, sounding very capital U. (laughs) Sort of like it speaks of a vast or transcendental state that's that somehow mysteriously underpins normal reality. Would you speak about the unconditioned? There has been mention of moments of awakening, Nibbana not as some far-off goal, but as any moment free from clinging. In practice, we experience moments where the mind is quite still. There are few or no thoughts. When we look, we see no clinging. It feels like a moment of awakening. That is, they're not always clinging and identification present in just more subtle and unapparent ways. If there was truly no clinging, would that not be a moment of the unconditioned? In other words, is there a difference between the mind free of clinging and the unconditioned? Comparing the two models of liberation, Mahayana and Theravada, does the Mahayana path go through a process parallel to the progress of insight in the Theravada model? In the Mahayana path is the opening to dukkha suffering deep enough to uproot the defilements. And if not, do you think this is because of the vow of bodhicitta waiting for the liberation of all beings to enable a continuation of helping all beings until everyone is liberated? For those of us who won't be here, can you speak some about the nature of mind and the what the different traditions have to say. 
Please clarify the following concepts. Enlightenment, the unconditioned, Nibbana, non-clinging, <laughs> liberation. Are these all the same? What are the differences? What is the definition of Arhant versus a Buddha? Have you met an Arhant? <laughs> Would you say just a little bit about the unconditioned from the perspective of the various traditions? Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between where this path leads and the path of other Buddhist traditions, particularly Tibetan Buddhism? After Nibbana, what? <laughs> for example, for a Sotapanna, a stream enter, what aspects of self-view remain? What is understood, what is not understood? Do some aspects of compassion arise along with wisdom? Do they necessarily know how many lifetimes remain? Is it seven lifetimes or seven changes of realm, the maximum? After rebirth, is there a continuation of refined sila, wisdom, compassion? Do they have a clue? <laughs> After rebirth, can they experience sotapanna, dream entry, fruition easily? There were more, but I just... So... <laughs> I'm actually working... Uh, on a book about all this, which should be out in about two and a half years. <laughs> I thought to try to give just, in the broadest strokes, you know, some framework for perhaps understanding some of these questions. Um, When I first, this is about 10 years ago, when I first started doing some of the Dzogchen practice, I had gone to this retreat. And the teachings were somewhat different than the Vipassana. You know, the, the language was different and the metaphors and the models were different. And I tormented myself in terms of who's right, who's wrong, how can I know? Back and forth and back and forth, because I had tremendous respect for all the teachers. You know, of all, they all seemed very wise and very awakened. But I was positing it in terms of who's right and who's wrong. And after a month of tormenting myself, I came to the very happy conclusion, or it resolved itself through what has become a new favorite mantra, which is, who knows? <laughs> About some of these very deep questions, the, the nature of the fully enlightened mind, what the experience of that is like. Well, we'll know when we get there. And the second view that helped me a lot was instead of seeing the different views as statements of absolute truth, which I was taking them to be. It's this way, it's that way. And if they differ, one, has to, one is right and one is wrong. Instead of taking them as statements of absolute truth, which was my predilection, I began to see all of them as statements of skillful means, that the different models are skillful means for liberation. And the understanding 
of the nature of liberation is the same, as I mentioned last week in the talk. The essence of the liberated mind is the mind of not clinging to anything. And there's no Buddhist tradition which disagrees with that. There's no Buddhist tradition which says cling. (laughs) (laughs) And so to see all of it as skillful means for not clinging, instead of getting caught up, no, they're right, or they're right. Okay, so that having been said. And the Buddha talked of, you know, that even all of the teachings that he gave are the raft to cross to the other shore. And we use the raft. We don't jump off the raft in midstream. However, it's a means. And any language, any concept that we can use about these very profound questions of ultimate truth, any concept we use will inevitably be limited because language cannot encompass it. And so different language has been used you know, by, by the different traditions. Okay, so just that's the framework for everything I'm about to say. Within the Theravada tradition, which is the tradition out of which this Vipassana practice comes, there is a distinction made, and I think Stephen spoke about this, between an Arhant and a Buddha. An Arhant being a fully enlightened being, meaning that greed, hatred, and delusion have all been uprooted from the mind. All the defilements have been uprooted. And so there is a complete freedom. A Buddha, in this way of understanding, is somebody who has not only freed the mind from all defilements, but has put in the time, over countless lifetimes, to perfect the great qualities and powers of mind that can be used skillfully, out of compassion, to help other beings. And so the range of the mind of a Buddha is said to be much greater than the range of the mind of an Arhant, although the freedom is the same. But the range, the power, the depth of the compassion, of the understanding, is different. Within the Theravada tradition, which is based on as you know, what is called the Pali Canon, which are the oldest extant teachings of the Buddha, said to be, go back to the original teachings as far as we know. The Theravada tradition is rooted in the Pali Canon. Even within the Theravada tradition, based on the suttas, based on the discourses of the Pali Canon, there are differences of view. As an example of one of them, and again, this gets to some very profound questions. So you really want to see the views, again, not necessarily 
statements of absolute truth, who's right, who's wrong, but all the interpretations of the suttas as being a skillful means in one way or another to free the mind. That is its value. Its value is not as dogma. As dogma, it's valueless. It's all to liberate the mind. So just as an example of some of the different views about the ultimate nature of the unconditioned and why we need to, in my view, just hold an openness of mind. Now let's see. Very common teaching found in many, many of the suttas are the teaching of the five aggregates. You know, that this mind-body process, what we call self, what we call I, is a constellation of mental, physical elements. And you're probably familiar with the five aggregates of, you know, the body, physical sensations and feelings, the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness, you know, and perceptions and all the mental formations and consciousness. Okay, within a traditional Burmese view, and very traditional and very rooted in the texts, consciousness is one of the aggregates, and that the unconditioned is that experience of the cessation of consciousness. And this is an experience that people have in practice, where the refinement of change, the refinement of the perception of impermanence, and actually of all the characteristics of the unsatisfying nature and selflessness, it gets so precise and the mind so balanced that at a certain point there is an opening to the cessation of consciousness, the cessation of awareness. And that has the power, that moment of sensation has the power to uproot certain defilements from the mind. And this is what's meant by the stages of enlightenment. We go through this path of insight, of deepening insight, open to the unconditioned in this way, has the power to uproot certain defilements progressively. first one, at the first stage, which is called stream enterer, the belief in the sense of self, of I, has been uprooted because all of the aggregates have been transcended. And so it becomes clear that they are not I, they are not self, they are not mine. And that's based on personal experience. Another view or another way of describing it, also based on the suttas, is found more in the Thai tradition. I would just like to read a couple of things. In a couple of the suttas, the question was asked, where do earth, water, fire, and air no footing find? Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul? Where are name and form wholly destroyed? 
the, the response in the sutta, where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous. The consciousness that makes no showing, nor has to do with finite, finiteness. But that's different language, because one language is talking about the cessation of consciousness, and the other is talking about a, a non-manifest consciousness, consciousness that is signless, boundless, or luminous. So if we take just the language, it gets confused. Well, which is it? Is it this or is it that? Just the notion, and I don't know whether you can appreciate the great wonder and mystery simply of the phrase, the the non-manifesting consciousness of the Arhant. What would that mean? The non-manifesting consciousness. It points to the mystery of it and the danger of jumping too quickly to views and conclusions and opinions about the nature of the liberated mind. Just as another example, this is from another sutta. It's an image which kind of points to this non-manifesting consciousness, the unconditioned, the unborn. So just as if there were a roofed house or a roofed hall having windows on the north, the south, or the east. When the sun rises and a ray has entered by way of the window, where does it land? On the western wall board. Okay, so, so the house is windows on three sides. The sun comes in the window. In the east side, where does it land? It lands on the western wall. And if there is no western wall, on the ground, and if there is no ground, on the water, and if there is no water, it does not land. In the same way, when there is no passion or grasping at the aggregates, consciousness does not land or grow, does not manifest. That, I tell you, has no sorrow, affliction, or despair. Stay open to the unknown. Stay open to the fact that we can't capture it completely in language. And that the different schools and the different traditions use some language or other to describe this mystery. And our practice, the means to the the means to our own experiencing it is through non-clinging to anything. That everyone agrees on. One of the questions was about, you know, is a moment of non-clinging a moment 
of the unconditioned, a moment of Nibbana. Again, it depends how the word, how the phrase is being used. Buddhadasa, who was one of the great Thai masters of the last century, he had a very kind of homey definition of Nibbana. He called it the cooled out mind. But that's in one definition what Nibbana means, cooled out. The mind cooled out from the fire of greed, of hatred, of delusion. And he talked about temporary Nibbana and permanent Nibbana. And temporary Nibbana, in his way of speaking, was the mind relatively cooled out. A moment of non-clinging, of non-grasping. So there's a quality of cooled out-idness. And we've experienced that. You know, when you are let out of the grasp of some burning, that sense of relief. But there are, as the questioner noted, there are many subtle levels of identification and attachment. Which So we may have cooled out from a gross level and have that sense of relief, have that sense of ease. And yet as we go on, we say, oh yeah, there's, there's a more subtle holding. And so many times in the practice, I've been sitting and feeling totally at ease, just the easy flow of phenomena without any sense of grasping in my mind. And I'll just be sitting and then all of a sudden I'll feel something relax. Just energetically relax. Relaxing something I didn't even know I had been holding on to until the moment of the letting go of it. And so we can use the sense or the phrase, you know, the way Buddha Dasa used it, of temporary Nibbana, as a relative, the spectrum of cooling out, knowing that the deeper we go, the deeper will the letting go be. And the Buddha talked about this in terms of different levels of defilements of mind, different levels of forces in the mind that cause suffering. Some are very gross and obvious, and we see them clearly. And they, they're strong enough to actually cause us to act. Some are less strong, but we're able to see them in the mind without them compelling action, so they don't drive us. But we still see the anger or desire or ill will. And there's a deeper level of what he called the latent defilements, where they're not manifesting in the moment. The mind in the moment is free of greed or hatred, delusion. It's not manifesting, but the potential for them is there. Well, that's a very interesting notion. And it sort of invites us to explore the mystery of consciousness. Okay, what does it mean? What is the experience of the mind, our own experience, not theoretically, to really look? What does it mean that in the moment it's not there, the defilement is not there, but that the potential remains? So some seed of it is there. What's the very notion of potential? And I'm, I'm asking these questions not for you to have an answer. 
It's just to appreciate the subtlety of this journey and the subtlety of the investigation. Or we could say, full Nibbana, full unconditioned, is actually uprooting even the latent defilements. So the mind is purified to that extent. So it's all on levels. People use the words in different ways. If we have an understanding of the whole map, then we just plug in to how particular people or traditions are using these words. In the Theravada tradition, the main emphasis has been given to be the path of the Arhant rather than the Buddha, although the Bodhisattva path, which is a path that leads to Buddhahood, was taught and is obviously fully embodied by the Buddha himself, so he was a shining example of that possibility. But in the Pali Canon, more and much more emphasis is given actually to the liberation of an Arhant for one very good reason is that in this way of understanding, it's a lot easier. You know, that we actually can free ourselves from suffering in this way. That the commitment to Buddhahood is a tremendously larger commitment you know, and a, a willingness to open to a much vaster range of suffering. So within the tradition of the Pali Canon, both, both paths are there with emphasis given on one. Okay, now we go over to a bit of the Mahayana tradition and Tibetan tradition. And like I say, I don't feel an expert in this, although I've done some practice in it. So this is just, again, very broad strokes. In the Mahayana tradition, which came later, historically, developed later, the emphasis was given to the Bodhisattva path of encouraging people to work for Buddhahood. But even within the, the Mahayana tradition, even within the Tibetan tradition, just as with Theravada, there are differences of view of what this means. Read many texts in the Mahayana suttas where they talk about Buddhahood in one lifetime through these efficacious means that we can attain Buddhahood in a single lifetime. Just at the Vipassana Teachers Conference, uh, the Western Buddhist Teachers Conference. We had at Spirit Rock uh, in the spring. The Dalai Lama was there. And the Dalai Lama spoke of that just doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, the path to Buddhahood is vast and involves lifetimes of evolution and practice of these qualities. Well, these are great teachers within the same tradition. Kind of have different takes on it. Well, then one might ask, are they talking about the same thing when they say Buddha or Buddhahood? Is the Buddha of Buddha in a single lifetime the same as the Buddha of the long evolutionary journey? Who knows? 
So I say all this and I lay all this out. Hopefully you're not more confused than when you came in, although <laughs> it's possible. Just that there are different frameworks for understanding. In the Bodhisattva tradition of the Mahayana, there are analogous progression to the stages of insight and the stages of enlightenment. They're called the different Bodhisattva Bhumis, different Bodhisattva levels, and I don't remember how many there are, but 11 or 16 or 21, some, some number. And the first level, the first Bodhisattva level, is also the eradication of the notion of self. It's the first direct experience of what is called shunyata or emptiness. So there are analogs, although not exact correspondences. I think that's all I want to say about this. The simplest, most pragmatic way of understanding, awakening, enlightenment, the unconditioned, the unborn, whatever, whatever words, whatever language you like to use, the most pragmatic understanding of it is the mind that is freed from greed and hatred and ignorance. And as I said, we have temporary moments of it to some level. We have transformative moments when we touch the depths. And we have the perfection of it in full enlightenment. But that's our work, and it's our work, and it's our practice moment to moment. If we can take refuge in that, that that's what we're practicing, freeing the mind from these forces which cause suffering, and perhaps bringing in, and this is for me has been just very meaningful, the aspiration of bodhicitta, which does not, in, in the Tibetan or Mahayana view, it is that aspiration to become Buddha, the fully awakened, fully enlightened Buddha. But for myself, leaving it more in the realm of who knows how this path will unfold. The way I understand or can bring bodhicitta down to where I am is may my practice be for the benefit of all beings. That's all. Wherever it goes, it's an arahant path, it's a Buddha path, it's a bodhisattva path. Let me free my mind from the forces of greed and hatred delusion, and may I do it with the motivation that it be for the benefit of all beings. That seems very basic. I like the basics, because to get too caught up in attachment to the metaphysical systems just involve ones in attachments to view. We can use them. They are skillful means to be used. And they're all used for non-clinging. 
And it's non-clinging which leads to freedom. So now you don't have to buy the book. <laughs> okay, this, that was kind of a long, <laughs> long answer to... These are a few questions which will bring it right back down to earth. That's a few questions just about the practice here. Do you have any advice for my neighbor whose breath just recently went from soft and quiet to loud and... (laughs) Something loud and coarse. Do you have any advice for me? (laughs) Besides noting... (laughs) Noting what? Noting... Noting something and unpleasantness eight times a minute. <laughs> interest in the interest is the factor most often flagging. Seems to be a subtext of conceit. I, I, the sense of I already know this and and doubt. Suggestions, comments, because of the quality of flagging interest. Uh, well, first about. Uh, the breathing loudly. You can really see it from two sides. One from the side of the breather and one from the side of <laughs> the listener. <laughs> this <laughs> it is helpful to pay attention. It's very helpful to pay attention to how loudly you're breathing. And if you can hear it, it would be good, even if it seems to be the natural, just what's happening energetically, it would be good to see if you could soften it a bit. Even if it's some kind of intentional move there, and maybe it would help to slightly open the mouth. You know, so you're not kind of pulling it through your nose if in some way that's causing the noise. I mean, in Zen, I've done some Zen sessions years ago, and of course there they go around with a stick, and, you know, if you're breathing too loud, <laughs> So that's on the one side. Pay attention. And, you know, if it feels that for some reason that's just what's happening and, and you can't, really can't control it, so you might, you might take a few sittings in your room, you know, and so where you allow that to happen, uh, you know, but you're also not disturbing others. Okay, that's from one side. From the side of the listener... The breathing loud is your Buddha. There's one statement the Buddha made, which of many, and I may, may have mentioned this earlier in one of the talks, but it's so radical to me that it just strikes at the heart of our practice and shows how much work we have to do. He said, as long as there is any attachment to the pleasant or aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. That's a very uncompromising statement in terms of where liberation is to be found in that mind that can hold the pleasant without attachment and the unpleasant without aversion. You know, and there's so many stories in the Buddhist time. You know, there are a lot of tiger stories. You know, and there's one monk was out in the forest and 
in many of them, the tiger just goes his way or her way. But in this particular story, the tiger came and started eating the monk. And the monk's just noting pain, pain. <laughs> and it said that by the time the tiger got to the knee, the monk had reached the first stage of enlightenment. <laughs> by the hip, the second stage. And the <laughs> by the time the tiger had its meal, it was fully enlightened. <laughs> I don't know if that's particularly inspiring to you or not. <laughs> but it does put in some perspective loud breathing. <laughs> And it is interesting to watch just how reactive our mind can get. I mean, this is not somebody beating us, and it's not a tiger eating us. It's in the category, perhaps, of unpleasant sound. And it may not even be unpleasant sound. It may be an unpleasant concept in the mind about the sound. My hunch is it would be somewhat easier if there were a loud backhoe outside that was a loud, abrasive, obnoxious sound and intermittent in the same way that the breathing annoys you. But if it were a machine, probably there might be somewhat less irritation. You know, but when it's somebody sitting next to us, we, we create very quickly all these concepts. You know, oh, why are they doing that? And shouldn't they be quiet? And we get, we rile ourselves up through our thoughts. This happens. I mean, it's it's very common, you know, for all of us, and to feel the irritation, even the rage, start arising. Well, if circumstances are such that this is happening. It's interesting to look at one's own reactions, you know, how we're getting caught. And really to look, to investigate, not not to kind of push away or be stoic, but really to take that investigative mind. Okay, well, what is it? It's just hearing. Now hearing, hearing. Can I let it in? Can I open to it? Where is the dukkha? Where is the suffering coming from? You know, and so it can be used. And it can be used very deeply. And it may not be easy, and it may not be a quick process of illumination, but it's worth paying attention in that way. So again, from both sides, we do want to be as considerate as possible to the other people sitting around us, and we want to work with the difficulties that come, because that's our path. Okay, there are so many more questions. Um... Maybe I'll, I'll just sort of end with one one more set. Uh, whether it's faith in my own Buddha nature, faith to sit with inner demons like loneliness and regret, or faith needed to accept how uncontrollable things are, it seems increasingly obvious to me that faith is of central importance in these teachings. Can you speak about ways you've discovered of cultivating this spiritual faculty of faith, especially for people like me, who often suffer from an attachment to wisdom, to wanting to know everything? 
And there were there were several other questions about about the development of faith. This ties in a little bit to the question of those very large questions about the unborn or freedom or enlightenment or liberation. I think there's a very important distinction between faith and belief. Belief draws conclusions. Now, belief has a lot of conclusions about things. For me, faith is that quality of openness to things beyond what I now know, to the realization that there's a lot that's yet unknown. And the faith is that kind of interest and confidence and trust in this process of opening, in this journey of opening. It's not about clinging to a belief. In the early years of my practice, when I had a lot of the difficulties that people have in in practice, you know, frustration and discouragement and depression and self-judgment and all the things that come. I would take refuge in a very simple reminder to myself. I would say, Joseph, just sit and walk. Sit and walk. Surrender to the Dharma. Let the Dharma take care of it all. You have your job. Just do your job. And it made it a lot simpler. I knew what I had to do. I had to sit and walk and try and pay as much attention as possible. And in that act of surrender, instead of trying to control what I thought should be happening or discouraged or despairing about what I thought wasn't happening, surrender, surrender to the Dharma. It's so much vaster than we can possibly know. We're doing our job. You do your practice. And it all unfolds. Something that can inspire the confidence to do that is at times just to think about both what first connected us to the Dharma, what was our initial inspiration. Something brought you here. This is a major commitment you've made. It wasn't like, oh, let's go to IMS for a three-month vacation. (laughs) You know, so there's some deep, deep movement of faith already in you, or you wouldn't be sitting here. Well, what is that rooted in? You know, what understanding do you have about life? What wisdom do you have within you already? So we, we retouch that. And the faith to surrender and just continue with our practice also comes when we think of, you know, the great beings that we may have either met or read about or seen, where you see somebody who really manifests great wisdom and compassion and kindness, you know, and emptiness. So we see, yes, it's possible. There are there are people who have done this, and we feel it. So that also can give us encouragement. I'd just like to close with a poem by uh, Mary Oliver. Uh, it has it has to do with this quality of faith and the challenges. You know, as we walk on the path, she called it the journey. Um, 
One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could. It's really trusting that, trusting that voice within us. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. <laughs>